Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. All right, it's two to two, season two, episode twenty-two of Drive-by Cinema. This is my co-host Paul. Howdy, y'all. And I'm Rick. Welcome. Welcome, Paul. Two, two, two. Two, two, two. Yeah, two, two, two. Two, two, two. How about this one? Two, two, two to two, two, two. Are you saying that that means something? Yeah, it means one fifty-eight to twenty-two minutes past two. Ah, two, 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 two. two, two, two. two, two, two. <laughs> I can see that. I kind of like that, yeah. yeah. Little you, you were t- we, we We've talked previously about people translating words to other languages that all sound like the same phoneme and then stringing them together in a silly well, sentence. French is particularly helpful for this because, you know, they just drop off entire... The sp- ends of all the words, yeah. yeah. Entire spelling systems to, to make everything essentially sound the same. So. Do you know one of those oh. French ones? I can't remember any of them. I didn't think we were going to be going Richard, there today. You used to have a really good French joke about a pullover that fits and uh, oysters oui. that smell. Qu'est-ce que la différence qui un moule et un pullover? What's the difference between a muscle and a pullover? Oui. A moule poule? Uh, no, no. A, a pullover moule? A pullover moule? A pullover fits? Mais... Mais un moule, boule au air. But a muscle smells. Of ovaries. <laughs> and I don't think I can claim any credit for that. I'm sure that was John Armstrong, a mutual friend who used to say that joke. Greetings, John, in the metasphere. Right. So, yeah, wow. So last week, Richard, we talked about Encounter or Encounters. I'm not entirely sure which one it is. 2021 movie starring uh, Riz Ahmed, yeah. Do we have oh, yes. anything to add at this point to 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 that what was said? No, but I want to pull you up on something you said previously, Paul. When we were discussing, were you pulling, there was a moment pulling where, me up. This is a serious uh, well, correction. Well, no? I, I want to entertain this in the spirit of me wanting to learn something, because I had said that. I didn't really pay too much attention to the lyrics of songs. And I tended to think of them just as kind of sounds in music. Frippery. Like, and like, you like had those, said, you'd made like the claim. Like those wallpaper borders that you had on the top of your top of your walls in the 1990s, yeah. Oh, yeah. What, the music is the what wall. to those? And that band of wallpapered floralism is, is the lyrics, yeah. Okay, I'm with you on that. And you said, well... You thought that most songs, anyway, didn't have much meaning. They were just, you know, they were just there as kind of a word salad with a tune. Yeah, and like, like, I gave, a, like a block I gave test. Two examples. Like a, a psychoanalytic block test. You, you see what, either you see an old horse or you see a young grandma or that kind of thing. And I gave two example songs. And you said, ah, well, both of those seem to me to be examples of the opposite, implying that they have real deep meaning to them. Yeah. And the examples I gave were Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, because it just seems to be a string of historical people. It seems to be about existential 
the global existential threat of uh, of climate change, doesn't it? I'm prepared to accept that it is the case that Billy Joel, who apparently is a keen historian, had gone through and listed a load of important and significant events as a way, as I understand it, I've now read, as a way of uh, puncturing some of the younger performers who were complaining that it it was much tougher to grow up today than it was in Billy Joel's era, which is plainly nonsense, sorry. Uh, so m- maybe I was wrong about that. Maybe that does carry quite a lot of meaning. But the other one that I suggested was just a series of meaningless words. Was it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine by REM. Yeah. And and you in, are implying, I think, when you pulled me up on this, that that, that isn't meaningless and that has lots of meaning. I, I have it. moments of arrogance, Richard, which you know sometimes <laughs> when the pills kick in, I you know I later don't stand by. But go on. So I was hoping you might explain the lyrics of It's the End of the World. I can't rightly remember it. Well, that's okay, because I've got them all here. Oh, God. So it goes, it starts off. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and aeroplanes. All fine. I understand all of those things are related to the end of the world. And Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Lenny Bruce being the famous uh, Outre comedian. Stand-up comedian, yeah. yeah, who, yeah. who brought swearing into into the stand-up routine. You know? That's right. Uh, so what is that? Why Why does that mean? What's that got to do with the end of the world? Okay, well, let's continue for a short time before I get back to that. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's the easiest bit of the song. Okay. Next we go, I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself churn. World serves its own needs. Don't misserve your own needs. Speed it up a notch. Speed grunt. No strength. The ladder starts to clatter, which, by the way, is beautiful lyrics. With a fear of height, down height. Wire in a fire. Represent the seven games. And a government for hire on a combat site. Left her, wasn't coming in a hurry. With the furies breathing down your neck. I see. Yeah. <laughs> now... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we all have our manic episodes, and it's great that Michael documented this. The ladder starts to clatter. It's a brilliant line. And it's the only one, actually, because I thought maybe, is that referring to that ladder? You know, there's a ladder in Jerusalem that no one will move, because no one knows who put it there. Potentially, yeah. I didn't know about that. Have you heard about that? No. No, you've not. So it's like on a temple. Some decorator in the 1920s put it there. I mean, they they flow. But you're saying it's just a wordle. It doesn't mean anything. Or does it? What? Okay, next verse. This means no fear. Cavalier, renegade, and steering clear. A tournament, a tournament, a tournament of lies. Great. I thought that was turn them into turn them into flies. <laughs> I, oh, I've misheard this song all this time. It's a Mondegreen. Offer me solutions, offer me alternatives, and I decline. Yeah. Beautiful lyrics. And then uh, the final verse. Leonard Bernstein, Leonid Brezhnev, nice. Lenny Bruce and Lester Bangs, Bertie Party, Cheesecake, Jelly Bean Boom, you symbiotic, patriotic, slam butt, neck, right, right. Yeah, okay, so it clearly sends into nonsense at the end, doesn't it? I think that's intentional. Well done, Michael. What I'd read, what I'd read was that he'd had a dream and he was in a party and I think someone was, or someone or everyone or someone was wearing T-shirts with the initials LB on them. And that's why all the names in here Including Lenny Bruce, who gets mentioned twice for some reason, are all LB. I don't know who Lester Bangs is. But, um, yes, anyway, that's been bugging me. 
but I've dealt with that now. Thanks. You've really, you've confirmed to me, Paul, that um, songs can just be a jumble of words, although beautifully put together in a beat poet format. Yes, and highly evocative, you know. So it is. Hey, I think it's time for a different kind of music. It is. It's time for our musical Midway Sting. (laughs) Would that it were Midway, Paul, but we've got a long way to go. So buckle up. (laughs) Right. So let's get down to business. We are looking today, this evening, at the fourth installation of the Matrix franchise, which, depending on how you view it on the the web, is either Matrix Resurrection or Matrix Resurrections. Matrix Resurrections, I think. Oh, with an S. Okay. Generally, people regard the second and third matrices as a disappointment. But the first Matrix, 1999, if you ask me, was a masterpiece, a brilliant piece of movie making. What do you think of the original, Paul? Let's start with the old. Was it 1999? Was it that late? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, that late. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. In my mind, it's a mid-90s kind of thing. It was ahead of its time, Paul, I think most people would think. So it resurrect- I mean, it set a trend. Resurrections imply something died a death and has been brought back to life. You know, <laughs> they've reheated the turkey. Uh, and was this a Christmas turkey? I guess we'll get onto that later. But what did I think of the first one? Yeah, I mean, I was wowed by it. It was, at the time, it was cutting edge in everything it did. Uh, and the visuals and special effects were knockout, weren't they, at the time? And I guess oh yeah, they set a trend. They, they set a trend, today, I guess. So oh, totally, totally. Yeah. So the, the it obviously what the Wachowskis did was they brought um, Hong Kong style. Uh, what's it called? Uh, Wu Wu Chan or what? I'm going to use the wrong name there. Wushu? Hong Kong style, yeah, Wushu style fighting with wire work, particularly into a kind of Hollywood format cyberpunk futuristic sci-fi. Yes. And William and Gibson's stuff was really recent, wasn't it? I mean, early Gibson was what, early 80s, mid 80s? Oh yeah, absolutely. But his, I mean, his popular stuff was what, late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and they introduced this amazing visual effect, the bullet time thing, which as I'm sure everybody knows now, because it's been so many behind-the-scenes documentaries and stuff, was achieved by surrounding the actors with loads of loads and loads of still cameras that wow. fired off in an arbitrary, arbitrarily short sequence. So you can imagine you can get kind of near infinitely fine frame rates by making them fire quicker and quicker or closer and closer together, can't you? And uh, you then string that together to get a sequence of um, a slow motion sequence, but where you can move the camera around, and that's uh, that was done by uh, having physically different, different cameras. separate cameras in each place. I didn't place realize that. Uh. Yeah, yeah. So you're effectively doing a freeze frame or near freeze frame with just a few m- microseconds passing, 
but you're also able to move the camera through a predetermined arc. So, like, each camera only runs for a second, and it triggers the next one like a domino kind of thing. I think there is still camera, but but yeah. We, we oh, wow. Yeah. So but like a domino effect. Yeah. Wow, it yeah, just runs, exactly. yeah, yeah. runs around the, the canopy of cameras. That's, I didn't know that. That is amazing. And the other amazing thing about that is that gives you whatever you can put in the camera, in the middle of the camera ring, as it were, as your subjects, your actors. But everything else around them has to be put in uh, sort of with visual effects in some way. Yeah. So they everything else is green screen, even though everything around the cameras, you know, except for the lenses and stuff. And then the environment so put it they're in, in focus. <laughs> well, that's not what they did. What they did is the environments that they're in, they rebuilt in CGI computer environments. So all those bullet time sequences, they've replaced the set with a, a, a faithful computer-generated copy of the set wow. that they can spin around and replace the background with on the bullet time scenes, which again was groundbreaking. And these techniques have, you know, paved the way for um, visual effects and CGI effects in films ever since. So it must have been one of the first. Uh, real action movies that had a animator and visual effects credit list that was as long as you know a cartoon, I guess. Yeah, and the, at the same time, you know, they're actually doing the fighting, they're doing the kung fu, you know, like the Hong Kong stars would have done. You know, so Keanu is learning all those moves. Famous. So when he so, says, you know, "Wow, I learned kung fu," he really did. He really did. <laughs> Which is why he's such a great action star and, you know, why he's so good in John Wick. You know, he's devoted to... <clears throat> there are many YouTube videos about Keanu going out in the gun range and learning his gun skills and stuff. I did save the credits for this uh, in order to watch an Easter egg that was ultimately a little bit underwhelming. And I must say <laughs> the credits were interminable. The number of people that worked on this for a budget of $150 million is staggering. It was just... One of the longest credit lists I've ever ever seen. It was as long as a mas- uh, as a Marvel movie, you know. I mean, not only this, The Matrix also in- is a thoughtful movie in that it tries to bring in some big ideas and, and successfully really engages ideas. with them. I think the first one being the idea of a singularity of technology, where I suppose it's been done in the Terminator as well, but yeah. never more adroitly than The Matrix where we're supposed to anticipate a future where AI and machines have reached a stage where perhaps humanity is not necessary anymore. There's been a war, and humans have fought back by blocking out the sunlight so they can't get solar energy. And the machine's response, and this is the biggest misstep, I suppose, scientifically, of the Matrix movie, the original, the the machines are apparently using human beings Mm -hmm. as a power source. (laughs) To do that, they're keeping them alive, but in sort of suspended animation. And they're apparently, in order to do that with a human being, you have to give them a world to live in. And so they simulate the world and plug everyone into it. And that keeps everyone happy enough to carry on existing. And in doing that, apparently they get ge- they generate power. Pretty dumb because, of course, energetically speaking, humans don't generate more power. You'd have to feed them to keep them alive, wouldn't you? So you'd get no net energy out of them. But Indeed. I, so, yes. But I think the idea is that humans can take chemical energy and create electrical energy. Yeah. 
Sure, but I mean, you the can do that anyway. These are silicon life forms, essentially. That you know, they're essentially hard, hard life forms, hard body life forms. Presumably, they can create electricity themselves. I didn't really get that ever. However, no. in, ignoring the backstory, I think it was the first time there was a. Conv- the backstory is is shonky, but what results is a very convincing idea of a, a, a an alternative reality that sort of. Simulated, well, simulates itself into into our into our acceptance and is almost un, in, in, undiscoverable. And for me, that was like the knockout punch of the Matrix. Was like, wow, yeah, we're living in a simulation, but we're not aware of, aware of it because it's the warp and weft is so convincing. Yeah, and this is an ancient philosophical idea. You know, it goes back to the shadows on the cave wall, and then more recently, post Enlightenment, to Descartes sort of scepticism where he Descartes starts by questioning some simple facts and the idea that you can't necessarily know things with great certainty and that you can't necessarily tell a dream from a reality say and ultimately he concludes we don't know that we're not a brain in a vat which a demon is manipulating to think that we're in in a different universe that's the problem of hard solipsism ultimately yeah that we can't even be sure that other people are real um, but I think it connected with the era, you know, this really, this representation of an, in, an insidious, not deus ex machina, but, you know, a, a, an insidious r- real reality that isn't real at all, you know. Uh, it was just, uh, it was wonderful, you know, the mind yeah. of, of the Matrix. So. Well, it meant you could enjoy the Matrix on several different levels. And on one level, you know, it's a philosophical investigation into the singularity and simulation theories and, you know, what it means to be human and whether whether ignorance is bliss is one of the big themes of the films. And on the other side, you can just enjoy the kung fu uh, or the people in fetish wear <laughs> fighting like, and, and driving around. Like, so, I think some things have come before it, uh, maybe five or ten years before that touch on the same kind of idea. I mean, sure. novel-wise, David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest was out about the same time, was it not? Okay, interesting. Like I've not read six. it. Yeah. Although I which, realise I should, but I don't really have the time to read it. Which essentially looks at a very powerful entertainment system that's more powerful than a drug. And we're kind of getting there today with social media, some of the social media platforms. They're, they're, they've been shown to be really addictive. But before that, of course, we had Oliver Stone and Wild Palms. Um, uh, where it's, it's a drug you ingest and you inhabit, you inhabit this this media world. It's like a media drug that you ingest and you you, you inhabit this alternate reality that you, you don't ever want to escape from. I think Ready Player One is more like Wild Wild Palms in that sense. Yeah, but what's different in the Matrix is is that we're in the simulation, whereas in Wild Palms, you know, we're looking from the real world and we're looking at people who it happens to. So I, I think the immersive effect of the Matrix we, we, it just plunges into this alternate reality and Astor's, as we're watching the movie to make sense of it, I think that was maybe like one of the one of the wow factors for me when I first watched it. Well, another strong influence on that idea must be Total Recall, which was the... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I suppose it's the Arnold Schwarzenegger adaptation of the Philip K. Dick novel in which a guy goes and gets... Uh, a sort of memory holiday injected into him, as it were, and winds up in a situation where he doesn't possibly, even even we don't know what the real reality is. Uh, and there's that really great moment where that guy arrives, 
and tells him that he's gone crazy within this um, sort of virtual reality holiday that he's having. Richard, have you ever been on the Alice in Wonderland trip at Blackpool Pleasure Beach? <laughs> well, is that what I, is that what that experience was like? No, I haven't, but I know that you have because I yeah. watched you do it. Richard, said, the you know, reason- Richard said, you know, you should be more like me, Paul, and grow up as I went on. <laughs> And I was only going on ironically anyway, but I, I went on and wow, it was, it, it was, my ironicism was, could no longer be contained. But what's interesting is, you know, you enter into this sort of orchid plastic world of weirdness. Uh, and then as you come out, you come down what can only be described as an off ramp to, you know, a, a, a brutalist concrete car park in the middle of, in the middle of Preston. It's like you come back to concrete reality on a concrete Exit. It's fabulous. The narrative there is maybe unintentional, but fabulous nonetheless. But so, Paul, are you uh, saying that ever ever since riding that ride, you're not sure whether you're a person who went on Alice in Wonderland ride or someone into- on an Alice in Wonderland ride who dreamt that they were in a dreary, concrete <laughs> yeah, reality, dreary yeah. Blackpool? <laughs> <laughs> well, but down the rabbit hole we do go in this movie, and of course we get Jefferson Airplane and their fabulous. I don't know what title is. I think it's been in all the Matrix movies, hasn't it? You know, the uh, Alice yeah. in Wonderland uh, sort of. It's got a fabulous. Remember what song. the Dormouse said. Yeah, it's I, a I fabulous yeah. song. Yeah, and isn't. I mean, it's difficult to talk about these ideas now. I think in twenty twenty one, soon to be twenty twenty two, with you know the anti vaxxers and that kind of thing, and the way that conspiracy theories have taken hold in a way. That I don't think my generation engaged in the first place. I mean, I think the way we engaged with conspiracy theories was a fun thing to think about. Ironically, yeah, was a way to put a spin on the world without believing it ever. Uh, but I mean, these days people are really fully invested in some really strange and unsupportable ideas, and I, you know, I don't know. Therefore, if the matrix, which is formed on if you like, quite sound philosophical foundations, is, you know, it's going to get the same, this this Matrix will get the same kind of reception from a young audience that the original Matrix did. I'm not sure we have a tolerance for alternative thinking these days because so much, you know, so much alternative thinking that we come across uh, on social media is just unpleasant, you know. Probably better just explain what the Matrix Resurrections is all about, haven't we? Good luck because with at that. the end, at the end of the third film, apparently <laughs> Neo is dead, and I think Trinity I was remember. dead too. Yeah, I can't remember what happened in Matrix Three. So the very beginning of Matrix Resurrections, we're seeing a complete rehash of the opening of the first Matrix. Someone who resembles, or is dressed at least like Trinity might have done, is logging into a computer in a dingy room. There's policemen and FBI agents or something coming and, up to the room to, to get her. And people are trying to find the portal, the rabbit hole out of there, yeah? Well, we see that she's being observed by somebody else who seems to be detached from the scene, like an observer. That's right. And things don't quite play out as they did in the first one because this woman gets captured, in fact. She's facing death, yeah. The person watching who we come to learn is Bugs, Played by Jessica um, Henwick, I think, who is amazing, by the way. I think she's really good in this and good in the other things I've seen her in as well. She apparently is called Bugs, 
and she seems to be a hacker and she describes this as a modal which is a weird word and she implies she's using it to imply that this is not the the real matrix not the full matrix but like a simulation of the matrix that she's uh, yeah it's described as a programming sandbox or yeah depending on your development mode for 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 software development like an evolutionary sandbox where they test out and develop characters, but in a live game setting or in a in a live programming setting, if you like. It's like a self-programming thing. I think that's the idea, basically, isn't it? And while she's observing all of this, she encounters one of the agents who's trying to apprehend this pseudo-Trinity character. And she recognises them as Morpheus or something similar to Morpheus. And yeah. she like encounters him in a a weird room, this amazing sequence where they open a door on the floor and sort of gravity flips around. And she drags him into this liminal space and eventually convinces him to take a red pill. Because that's symbolic from the first movie. Um, in fact, red pill has taken on a really icky kind of symbolism these there days. We go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the original movie, it was the symbolic moment where you accept the truth of the uh, fake reality that you're in, you take the red pill and you're going to be ejected from it. You watch the walls dissolve, yeah. And they dissolved in code. Fabulous moments from the original movie. If you take the blue pill, you forget your revelation, you go back to living your normal life. It's become synonymous with all conspiracy theorists nowadays, of course. Particularly in the manosphere, but not limited to that. Also, you know, probably flat earthers and stuff like that where taking the red pill is seen as rejecting the orthodoxy <laughs> than common view. So it's got quite a poisonous notion these, these days. days yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, it just shows you the seminal influence of the Matrix, doesn't it, that it became that. Um, so we then cut uh, to seeing Keanu Reeves playing Thomas Anderson, somewhat older than he was in the original film, of course, with a beard and long hair. And he's sitting in an office, and it's obvious, fairly quickly, it's obvious that he's a computer developer, he's a game developer. And he's even got things like models, the vinyls that you get of all kinds of, you know, cartoons and stuff and and video games, sitting on his desk of The Matrix. There's like a Trinity vinyl and other stuff from the film, and I think there's a Squiddy thing as well somewhere on his desk. It becomes obvious that he has been tasked to making the fourth Matrix video game. Yes. Now, that implies that he made the first three, yeah. Exactly. Now, you either think this is cheesy and shit or amazing, and I thought it was amazing. (laughs) Paul, you obviously thought it was cheesy and shit. (laughs) I just find it hard to believe that he's come out of the Matrix. Well, he's in the Matrix, yeah? Yeah. He's in the Matrix... Not knowing he's in the Matrix, making a movie about him having been in the Matrix, making a computer game about him having been, or a character called Neo, being in a Matrix that he's unaware of. Yeah, is that is that is that correct? Is that what's really happening here? Yeah, but wow. they lampshade that because later on, I mean, he's seeing a therapist, and we learn that he had the difficulty. Yeah. We learned that he'd had difficulty separating fantasy from reality. So it implies that he did have the crisis you're describing, that he did stop seeing the distinction between his his art, his video game, that describes the story where he's in a fake reality, 
And he started really thinking that he was. And the therapist is trying to help him through that by giving him these conspicuously coloured blue pills to take that keep him docile and from freaking out in the same way. So therefore, we're to assume that he has no sense that, you know, the memories that impact upon him at times, he has no real sense that they're continuous memories of an experienced reality. Is that right, yeah? Well, we're, I think if we're to think anything, we're to understand He's not that- playing dumb, what I'm saying. He's not, he's not pretending to go along and actually knows, wow, all that stuff really, really happened to me. I better put it in a computer game so I can get it all under control in my mind. Like, he's docile within the system now. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think whatever feelings he may have that you're describing are being suppressed by this drug in inverted commas, which means suppressed by the programming in the Matrix. Wow. Because, obviously, it's no surprise that Neo really is in, well, Thomas Anderson really is in a Matrix again, somehow. And he's seeing a therapist played by... um, uh, Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Patrick Harris, yeah, exactly. Uh, who's really good in it, in it, actually. He's got a boss who's a complete dick, who's at the same time trying to coax him into making a new version of a game which he'd insisted he was never going to make uh, a- another game of. And this, of course, is a meta, self-referential, postmodernist thing about the Matrix film itself which the Wachowskis had said it was going to, number three was the last one. They weren't going to come back to it. And yet here we are, having having gone through what was presumably was development hell for the movie, yeah. we're seeing the, the results of that being played out on screen as they talk about development hell for this Matrix game. We see all these kind of, uh, these... Um, I really hated this bit. <laughs> Well, it's the content these, uh, creation meetings that are, you know. Oh, I didn't like this 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 noodly idea that they tacked onto it. It, it. it wasn't in the spirit of the movie. You know, it's quite a serious movie. Uh, and to self reference, I know to self to self referentiate in in a laughy way, I think was a mistake. But what they're doing is they're, they're coming out with all these crappy sort of focus group ideas about what should be in a game and. Thomas Anderson is obviously not too pleased about this and, you know, and on and on. But uh, I thought there's a certain genius about making The Matrix into a game within The Matrix. Within The Matrix, yeah. It is clever. Because, <laughs> you know, firstly, after The Matrix itself, there was quite a cool video game made, which was pretty good. And they're also doing a brand new game right now called The Matrix Awakens which looks amazing. The technology that they're using for it looks completely astounding. So wait a minute. So when Bugs, in the, in the, in the opening sequence, she's observing Ex yeah. Machina, if you like, uh, yeah. Trinity, yeah? Is she within the Matrix or is she within the game within the Matrix? Well, that point? it turns out that Thomas Anderson has been running small versions of his game on his computer. Right. Matrix games. So, so yeah, what we're to assume is that Bugs is hacking into the Matrix from the outside world where she lives. And she's found a way to also She's not hack. in a pod at all. No, no. She's in the real world. She's in the real world. She's on a hover ship. 
And wow. she's hacking into the Matrix, but she's also hacking into Neo's computer, into his simulated Matrix. That his, Which his is actually running game. part of the Matrix itself. Which is running as part of the Matrix itself, yeah. And so she's seeing the old Morpheus that's being simulated in Neo's pet Matrix. But meanwhile, back in Thomas Anderson's reality, which isn't reality, the building gets invaded by armed intruders. And he meets Morpheus, who's been injected into there to try and extract Neo. And he tries to convince him to take the red pill. But Thomas Anderson is very wary about this. He escapes from the Morpheus character. He gets shot, and then I think he wakes up again. Um, in a pod, he goes yeah. through. He goes through more development hell. No, not in the pod, not yet. He's still oh. in the Matrix. More development hell happens. Eventually, he goes kind of crazy, and he jumps off a building. That's right, yeah. And then he sees. His th- then we see him with his therapist again. So it's like he's immortal. He has to keep living. He has to continually keep living in this reality. And eventually. He goes down to the coffee shop downstairs from this building, and he sees a woman. It's we recognise her as Tiff as Trinity, Carrie Ann Moss. Um, she's clearly a mum. She's got two two kids in tow. She's like a well-off um, soccer mum, yeah. And she introduces herself as Tiffany eventually Tiffany, when yeah. when uh, Neo's encouraged or Thomas is encouraged to meet her. Um, but it turns out, obviously, she's a mum. It turns out she's married to a guy called Chad who comes in and says hello. And <laughs> his his bit of behind-the-scenes secret stuff, he's played by the director of the John Wick movies. Wow. So, which is so cute. So they're in a simulated universe uh, in which the Matrix movies are video games. And the character playing Thomas Anderson, Keanu Reeves, the director of another movie that he is in in the real world, is playing the husband of the woman that he loves in The Matrix. It's just brilliant. In a cinematic setting, yeah. Wow. Okay, so they've really gone meta on this. Yes. Oh, very meta. It's so meta, it's untrue. And complex. I mean, I, I found it quite complex. And I did fall asleep at this point for the first time in the movie. <laughs> so tell me now, Neo now awakens in a pod and Trinity well, is next to him. Well, what Bugs realises is they're going to have to do something a bit different to get Neo out, to make him wake up. So Thomas winds up on a rooftop about to jump again, I think, when Bugs shows up. Um, and then they escape through another door on the Tokyo train. That was quite up a good that part, I thought. And they're also explaining that, unlike in the original movie, they don't need a hard line to exit the Matrix anymore. They can get in and out by, you know, wirelessly, effectively. Times have moved on. And in the theatre, they've got Morpheus there again. And they're replaying scenes from the original movie where uh, Morpheus was convincing Neo in the original construct with the two chairs and and all that stuff. And they're replaying that on a ripped screen at the back of the theatre while they're also explaining stuff to him. He does agree eventually to take the, the red pill symbolically to be rejected from the Matrix. And as he does that... 
Wait a minute, is this the point he's on a floating Japanese pavilion in the middle of a lake? No, that comes a little bit later. Oh, later, okay. I've got something to say about that. (laughs) He he is escaping from the... uh, Well, the theatre gets invaded, doesn't it, by more agents. Yes. And there's a big shootout. They're all dressed really stylishly. There's some fan service here, yeah. They're, they're not eating bland chicken anymore, are they? they, they they've like they've improved the food, I think, haven't they? Oh, they're growing strawberries in the real world. That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. But within the Matrix, just as before, it's all like leather, latex, you know, corsets and crazy stuff. And it's all very androgynous fashion styles, which is, you know, it's really cool. Um, meanwhile... Neo is, as you say, he's being ejected from his pod. He wakes up again in his pod and he gets uh, rescued ultimately. And he notices Tr- Trinity next door, conveniently, in, in, the, in the pod next door. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Two pods close together in a special area of this. Now, this I've never really understood. It's like you can't just, why can't you just wake people up and pull them out of the pod? The, their brains will die if you yeah, take them right. off the juice too quickly. Yeah. They have to. They have to be aware and want to leave, yeah, in their minds. Yeah, I mean, there's something dangerously dualistic about some of the Matrix philosophy here, which is a bit weird, isn't it? But um, in this movie, though, they apparently have teamed up with the machines, so they've got robots and AIs and synthians right, yeah, to help yeah. them. They've got squiddies who will help because out. because the robots went to war against each other. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A resource. I like this backstory. Us. I thought it was it was quite convincing. Because like when we talk about singularity and you know and the advance of AI and uh, the inevitability of AI becoming clever but not necessarily conscious and that kind of thing, we never really we never I've never really heard this theory put forward that you know why would it always be you know the borg why wouldn't it separate itself and try to destroy parts of itself i mean it doesn't necessarily follow that it wouldn't does it agreed no i think the most likely scenario is ai would team up with gingers because they have no soul right and <laughs> uh and eliminate everybody else so you'll be okay paul i think that's good news for you <laughs> Continual anti-gingerism. <laughs> no, I'm saying that gingers will be the chosen ones in the new future. It's probably why the Harkonnens were all ginger. You um, mean like controls of international finance? That kind of compliments. Is that the kind of compliment you're, you're passing over here, Richard? <laughs> oh, right. careful. Dangerous ground. Listen, the new human hideout isn't... What was it? What was it called? Zion. It used to be called Zion, didn't it? Yes, it used to be called Zion. The, yeah, yeah. The new human had it was called Io, which means it's got a Japanese pavilion floating on water. Well, that's when they go in for training, isn't it? He, he pops into the construct for training with Morpheus. Yeah, my and, thought was uh, let's. I mean, we're not there yet, but let, let me just say what my thought was. My thought was they turned up at Centre Parks. <laughs> Is that what what it's like at Centre Park? Do they have well without the without the floating pavilion? Yeah, tatami pavilions and kung fu happening. <laughs> it's bloody expensive Centre Parks. It is if you book a kung fu session with Morpheus. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the waivers you have to sign. Have you been to Centre Parks, Paul? 
I have for a weekend, yeah. Right. And yeah. um, what activities did you partake in? I rode a mountain bike. I went to the wave pool and went down the slides. And we had, you know, pizza in a very American Americana-themed sort of, not restaurant, but extensive entertainment complex. And the the, sh- the huts or chalets were very nice indeed. The pizza was, you know, standard. standard Did fare. they have a lazy river? Inside the indoor wave pool complex, they did, but I didn't really go on it. It's, it, it was it was a big, a big, big complex. But Paul, you're all about lazy rivers. I thought you'd been straight in there. Well, since you poo-pooed my ideas for future transportation involving lazy rivers, I've, 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 I'm not going to. I'm just I'm not going to mention them in your presence, Richard. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> now so the point is obviously. Now that Neo is out of the Matrix, he wants to rescue Trinity. He's got to got to rescue her because he knows he loves her. And you know, this is the thing about this film is, I, unlike all the other Matrix films, this feels really warm. You just feel a lot of affection towards Neo and Trinity. That, didn't you feel feel this about it? Well, I mean, in the previous films, it's all action, and you know, we don't really see them as humans, do we? We see them as heroes. They do fall in love. They have a... Yeah, Neo. he is very human. Or, yeah, Or Anderson. He's very, very human. Uh, and he he has foibles and failings and age, you know. So, so yeah. It, I think it's a real kind of love story for the two of them. It And it, like, it gives them the ending they kind of deserve, whereas they didn't get to live a happy life at the end of the third Matrix film. But now it's like they're now... Retelling a story or giving them an ending, happily ever after ending. I think it's sweet, and it's a bit like kind of watching your mum and dad have, going on a date night. Really, isn't it? It's like you know the older couple who are clearly in love with each other. I I found it a really warm sort of relationshipy kind of movie. I was quite pleased with it for that. I did enjoy it. It makes me feel like I'm not too old, you know, to find love. <laughs> Well, this all hoping for 2022, Rich. <laughs> so I mean, he jumps back in the Matrix, yeah, is what you're saying. And he's promptly confronted by the psychiatrist <laughs> who is actually Agent Smith. No, no. No, the psychiatrist is not Agent Smith. No. No? no he, he goes back in and he beats Smith up after a long fight. He is not Agent Smith. No, you're right, yeah. Then they go to the therapist and... The therapist. He's the creator of the Matrix, the psychiatrist. That's, That's right. What he is. Sorry, it's not he, Smith. I knew. I knew it was somebody else. Sorry. He's the analyst, the architect of the Matrix now, and he's got a black cat called Deja Vu. That was, that was nice. He can just stop time, and even though Neo is trying to do things and hack the Matrix, he just can't do anything. He, you know, it's we're in bullet time, as he says, and I thought this was a bit. On the nose, he says, "I'm using bullet your own bullet time against you." So I didn't particularly like the fact that you know he could just walk, he could freeze time and walk through the other characters. I just it was too convenient for a body to have that power. I thought, and the other thing was like, if it is the creator of the Matrix, why can't he just you know use the key and just take these characters out of there? Why well, does he have to do it within the 
within the physical architecture of the Matrix itself. Ah, but he explains, doesn't he? Perhaps this is the bit you were asleep for. He's figured out that the best way, the optimum way of running this sort of network of human brains is if Neo and Trinity are in the Matrix. Uh, but And they must be in close proximity to one another so that they kind of experience the yearning, maybe, or the unrequited, unfulfilled love and romance. But they mustn't get together because if they get together, they have the power to destroy the Matrix. So he's playing this this game in a way where he's keeping them close enough together, both physically and also in the Matrix subsystem. Yeah, and he's sort of teasing one another with them. And this is all his design. This is his analysis, the best not, way to run and stay. Not the machine's the design. He is a machine. The architect, sorry, the, is the, the therapist machine. is a machine. Yeah. This is good. You're making, you're making it all make sense for me, Richard. So they have to leave the Matrix um, because uh, they can't apparently beat the, the therapist. So they go back to IO. And there's a political situation which emerges because um, the leader, who wasn't Niobe, I think, in the second and third films, the leader of the humans in Io is not very happy about the idea of going back and breaking the sort of truce with the machines and trying to stir things up. But it, as it turns out, Neo persuades a lot of the crews of the hover ships to go with him. They all volunteer to go back in to try and rescue Trinity in force. And so they have this plan, this heist plan is concocted and it includes the, uh, it includes agent Smith who will help them out. Hey, now uh, Neil's business partner, a programming partner, he reveals himself to his agent Smith and he has a really good line. It's like, Anybody could have been you, but I was always anybody. Like he was always the guy that nobody noticed, but was you know, yeah, powerfully, <laughs> powerfully double crossing behind the scenes kind of thing. It was a really good line, but I can't quite remember it. But I, yeah, I'd woken up by that point. <laughs> he's, a, he's a nice character, Smith. He's played well here, even yeah. though it's not Hugo Weaving from the originals. Uh, he's still played really well by by the current actor whose name I can't remember. Okay, so they jump in the Matrix one last time to do a deal or a devil's bargain with with the analyst. Is that right? Like, Neil says, hey, if I can convince uh, Trinity of her own free will to get out, you've got to let us get out. But if I fail to, then the Matrix is yours. Is that the basic idea? That's right, yeah. Right. So Neo goes with this ultimatum, but there's a whole load of the, uh, the, the crew there as well, all jacked in. The therapist gets Trinity to turn up to this coffee shop or wherever they're having his meeting. But at the last moment, she turns around and, you know, she rejects the name Tiffany that Chad was calling her. You know, Neo's finally won. But of course, the therapist kind of double crosses them at this point. He's going to try and reset it all. And this is where Agent Smith steps in and he takes deja vu, I think, away from the, the therapist and it gives all of them a chance to to do a fighting retreat out of there. And then we get the massive climactic battle at the end of all of this, and they're all shooting guns and driving through the streets. That was good. And, and the uh, denouement, of course, is uh, Neo attempting to 
reprise his fly off into the skies kind of thing. Yeah, but and he can't. The he engine can't doesn't do it. work. Yeah, and of course it's Trinity who saves the day. Trinity grabs Suddenly, his hand yeah. and flies off. And the very final scene is them busting through the the um, office of the therapist and uh, and basically telling him, laying down the law and telling him what's going to happen. It's Trying pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Richard, you've, you've, you've exercised great patience by, by <laughs> going through this podcast with somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. You've been very patient. Have you thought about being a primary school teacher? <laughs> very good, thank you. Okay, so well, it's made sense to me now. Although I have to say, it didn't make sense in the movie theater. In your defense, of the movie's defense, it probably would have made more sense if I hadn't fallen asleep in the middle. That wasn't really because the movie was boring. I don't think it was just because you're getting I fell asleep. Yeah, oh, hey! it was it was nap time, wasn't it, Paul? <laughs> Should we all have a yeah. nap? Should we have a Here's, wobble? Let's go let's, for a wobble and then a nap. Let's have a glass of milk, a bourbon biscuit, and then you can all put your heads down on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> But this, I mean, you got your money's worth. This is two hours and 28 minutes. And, and it, it was, you know, action-packed all the way. There's a lot I loved about this film. But I've got to say, I didn't like the action as much as I was hoping to. And you wouldn't be alone in saying that. I'll tell you why. It's pretty simple. In the original Matrix, all of the action, all of the fights are c- completely crisp. They're beautifully shot. They're understandably shot you know they never cross the line if you know what that means in terms of shooting a fight yeah it's all crisp and the bullet time is the ultimate expression of that you know the moments of the fastest action they freeze completely and let you have a good look at what's happening so you can always totally understand why the fight is going the way it is and who is winning and why Neo is so cool and why the agents are so dangerous etc all of the fights, therefore, are part of the story. They tell the story. And they're not just there for visual eye candy. Although that's exactly what they also are. Whereas... You were saying this, this is Marvelized in some sense. Well, and I think this is probably a problem of the second and third Matrix movies as well, to an extent. But in this movie, there's a lot of fights shot. Shaky cam. Yeah, Marvel-style shaky cam. Blurry. Not quite sure what's going on. You know... Things that aren't quite as clear, they're not as crisp, they're not as clean, they're a bit more chaotic. And there's quite a lot going on quite often. There's lots of characters sometimes fighting, so maybe that's allowable. But I think it it loses something from the original when they do that, you know, and I think it's a slight shame. I you know, I my my feelings were the action there was a lot of sound and fury to very little effect. It was, if you like, a digitised car chase, a lot of the action, yeah. You know, a car chase in a different form. Uh, and I felt that they were trying to overcompensate for, like you were saying, the lack of tautness and crispness in the action with by having more action, you know, filling it out, which was a mistake. Uh, and it was really... It wasn't that you couldn't follow what, the action, what, what was relevant in the action. It was just there was so much of it you kind of didn't want to follow it anymore, was my feeling. There's just a, that's why I say it's marvelized, it, is there was just a lot of action that just went on and on and on. That was my, that was my first observation. But I mean, I, I'm not gonna knock the effects. I thought the effects were were, were, were pretty strong still. Uh however, 
they weren't mind-blowing like they were in 1999. So it wasn't the movie that The Matrix was. And I think going in there, it's like you always want the Matrix, a Matrix movie to be like, to have the same, for you to have the same reaction to it as you did to the first movie. So they're always going to be, they're always going to be disadvantageously compared to the first movie, I think, is the problem with them. I mean, maybe two and three, if the if the Matrix one hadn't existed, maybe we wouldn't view them as negatively as we do. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. It's got a lot to live up to. Yeah. It, it could maybe have done a bit more with the being a game idea. It that felt a bit thrown away after the first act, didn't it? It felt like they were just trying to deal with that problem. Because the other thing that we didn't mention is it is made clear that in order to get Neo and Trinity back, the machines have had to clone Neo and Trinity. So these really are rebuilds of them. So the implication is that they actually did die in three. Yeah. Oh, no question that they died. Uh, and have been resurrected, of course, hence the name. Oh, a phylum. <laughs> it makes sense. And the other thing, of course, is it's supposed to be quite a bit uh, after when we might have expected it. So I think it's supposed to be 60 years after. 60 years, yeah. So it's said that um, the that Neo and, and Trinity look older than they see themselves because it's a residual body image in the Matrix. You see yourself as you imagine yourself. Ah. There are a couple of scenes where you see... But no, no, then the they wake up in the pod and they're not older, though, are they? Hmm. That's... That's odd, actually. Although they do look right. a bit ropey and do. older, don't they? Look, the machinations of the plot do work. You know, the cogs do turn. It does all connect together. I'm, I, I just think, you know, in two hours, could somebody new to this movie take all this oh, on board? The wheels within God, wheels, if, you know. The, if you haven't the seen The Matrix Wimbles of your mind, you know, all the white, white rabbit stuff, you know. It's just, Wow. It's a lot to take on board for somebody new to the franchise, isn't it? There is no way you would understand this movie if you hadn't seen the previous Matrix Matrix movies, which is surely a big shame. Which is fan service. There's a lot of stuff in here that I think is there as fan service rather than being essential to making this as an atomic movie, as a singular unary atomic movie work. And I tell you, there's also a lot of flashbacks or just it cut that was images. when I fell asleep Richard it was <laughs> of like the original it, movie I was like is this is this a new movie or is this the original like there's a lot it's, of the old movie wasn't there a lot of it but they, they just put scenes from the old movie in into cuts <laughs> as rem- memories or dreams point. yeah, yeah it, was it wasn't necessary point. it was not necessary because it and would serve to confuse new newcomers to to, to, to the franchise yeah and, and it didn't add anything to the story I mean, it, if you've seen the old matrices, you remembered it anyway. And if you hadn't, wouldn't have it. It wasn't exposition. It, would make no sense. it didn't, yeah. it didn't yeah, explain yeah. anything. And it it only sought to draw, you know, unflattering parallels in comparison with the original. Did you, that is the just, biggest drawback: exposition that didn't work as exposition. Yeah, yeah. And a so, lot of it, yeah. minutes and minutes of it. Yeah, it just kept happening. It kept happening, and and you know. There was one moment I described where they're in that that theatre and they're trying to talk Neo into swallowing the red pill and you see it projected. Okay, I can buy that. That's kind of... It's sort of diegetic 
you know, yes. cutscene stuff. But the other bits are just in- intercut. You're not even sure whose memory it is, or, you know, is it Neo remembering, or is it us, or is it bugs? It didn't make any sense. It's, it's, I suppose, in this context, it's seen from a video game, right? Yes. But it's not even contextualised like that. It, it exactly, could have been cleverly you know, done. It could have been on some it, it kid's screen. don't deal with alternatively perceived realities, you know. We refer back to the original movie by looking at a photo on the mantelpiece and saying, oh, those are happy times, you know, focusing on the photo. Cut back, you know, it's 10 seconds, 20 seconds, reference to a previous movie. This was just, I thought, almost indulgent in the way, and, and, and quite lazy in a certain sort of way, uh, taking taking content and, and not even upcycling, just reusing it as is, uh, from the charity shop, you know, from the from the thrift store. So those are detractors for me. That not with that notwithstanding, I thought generally the movie itself was a good one. It's a recommend. This is the second kind of reboot or revisit of an old franchise that we've seen in in this month, even. Um, that the other being Ghostbusters Afterlife, of course. Do you, which do you think? Which I worked you round to accept it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> you were, Richard was not keen on going to see that at all. <laughs> well, which of these two movies do you think did did it or was oh. more successful? Well, I think both of them were, were were hella into their fan service and didn't leave, you know, the ghost of a very successful movie behind in a way that was satisfying and, and weren't and weren't close enough to original movies to be sequels, yeah. So they couldn't operate as, as, as fully functional sequels and they didn't chart new ground as as new movies. However, I think Ghostbusters Afterlife made the best effort of putting its best foot forward and becoming something new. I don't know if you'd agree hmm. with that. Uh, this, yeah. although it was good, felt a bit like a rehash. Rather than a re, re, uh, rather than a resurrection. I have warm feelings for both of these films. I can see you disagree. Maybe I'm nostalgic. Maybe I'm in a nostalgic, soppy mood. Maybe it's the season. Uh, but I did enjoy both of them. Um, I think on ah. balance, though, I think I preferred the love Richards. story, the Neo Trinity love story, as being a more satisfying thing to see. And I also without a doubt, this is a more sophisticated movie. Without a doubt, yeah. you know, uh, probably a better made movie. There, there are aspects of Ghostbusters Afterlife, particularly the script and the dialogue and some of the acting. It's obvious it was rushed through production. Yeah. Whereas I think this is this is a labour of love and it's been worked on with with a lot of effort, de- effort and attention to detail. Also, did you notice Christina Ricci is in this film? No, no, I didn't. Should I? She's. I think she's she? like the. Who is she? Christina Ritchie, she was uh, Wednesday Adams in the Adam in the old Adams Family movies, you know. No way. So she was playing the like focus group mar- marketing person who addressed them about the video game. So maybe the bit you weren't enjoying, but she was she was in it, which I think is a score. Uh, and as I say, Jessica Jessica Henwick Henick, how you pronounce her name as Bugs. She was in, I think. Uh, the Marvel, the Iron Fist series, I think, as well, as a martial artist. I think she's really cool. I think she's brilliant. I love her. So, for those reasons, I've got to say, I think Matrix Resurrections takes the, the biscuit for those two. I mean, sure. I mean, in terms of somebody who doesn't know if their illness 
and, and their intrusive thoughts are really not real. Uh, I thought, you know, Keanu did a great job portraying that. Yeah. And then for it all to be an alternative reality, well, that's just a slap in the face. And for experience before, but not remember it, you know. I think those steps in the movie were set out really well. But for me, there's a conundrum here. Like, if in the if in the Matrix he's the programmer of a functional part of the Matrix, could it not be that therefore he's actually the creator of the Matrix? Potentially. Although that's never explored. Well, I mean, I, I think... It be wheels within wheels within wheels, even. This is it. I think some of the confusing philosophy of the later m- movies of the last set, you know, the two and three, could lead all kinds of weird conclusions. Conclusions, yeah. yeah. Which, um, of course, two hours is not enough to explore. No, but, indeed. Okay. I mean, there's a lot to fit in, isn't there? There's a lot of gunplay, a lot of car chases. Um, look. Let's get to scores. Yeah, it's about time, isn't it? It's about time. Um, let's start with acting, as we seem to usually do. It begins with A. It's alphabetical in a way. I don't know. Acting, Paul. Yeah, I mean, when Keanu started out, I mean, uh, people just assumed that he could not act. Uh, Bill and Ted? Or was it Point Break was his first major stab at stardom? I can't remember which one. I love both of those films. And I don't don't care what Uh, people say about his acting. But in Bill and Ted... He's brilliant in Bill and Ted. You know, he is a wooden airhead. But then his character is a wooden airhead. Yeah. So you've got to give him leeway. I think he might just have been a wooden airhead himself at that point. But it doesn't matter. The point is now he's a really good actor. Uh, uh, But still, you know, he always plays those characters that are not emotional flatlines, but, you know, emotionally quite level in the way... They process reality, you know. Uh, he's still a head, you know. He's very much a psych, psych, psychedelic head. In his characters are always like that, you know. Uh, but I thought he was great. He was great in this. I very convincing. Uh, all the support and all the leads did a great job. Uh, it's an action movie, so I mean, we're not looking for any deep personal transformations. However, you know, you know his portrayal of mental difficulty, I thought here was uh, very convincing. And so I'm going to score it an 8, Richard. How about you? Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, Jonathan Groff as Agent Smith, Neil Patrick Harris, Jessica Henwick. This movie is packed with brilliant actors who oh. you're going to love. It's a 9. I feel the big me. score's coming. Wow, a 9. Praise Indeed. Okay, going on to uh, the storyline, and if you like, I think because this is the Matrix, the world creation that's going on here. What did you feel about that, Richard? Look, writing your way out of a dead end, out of a corner. Uh, on the other hand, writing your way out of a dead end, a corner in a world where nothing, you, you know, you can't see anything is real. Uh, perhaps that's a bit of a cheat. I thought it was pretty good. There's some clever touches here. Uh, you know, big flaws are not not addressed, but maybe they never can be. It's decent. I'm going to go seven. Okay, I would score it eight uh, for everything, pretty much ditto as you just said. But I'm going to take a mark off for I felt somewhat gratuitous fan service and a lack of engagement in the philosophy of the original movie. Uh, so a seven. Yeah, I mean, one weakness is, and again, it's back to the action sequences. But you know when uh, Trinity is driving a Ducati with Neo on the back at the end of the movie? Yeah, yeah. And he is continuously, like, shielding them from bullets coming at them. Yeah. And he does that over and over again. It's a bit, yes. it's a bit samey. 
and I always thought the thing about Neo is he ought to be in the first film he's he's seen the Matrix and he can hack it basically he should code it he's a coder yeah I think he should be more creative and I think they failed constantly throughout all of the subsequent movies to be as creative as they could be with Neo he just stops bullets and that's it really so, but I mean, uh, I, I think in terms of plot armor, uh, it's a matrix. So I, I can accept that they do ridiculous things on the back of a motorbike. <laughs> What's more difficult to accept is that in a world like that, the plot armor wouldn't. The armor, plot armor is one thing in terms of scripting this, but how that plot armor is represented within a matrix, you know, even in Fortnite, you've got to pay a lot for your for your for, for your mods, yeah. So I can't really see Ooh, unless he's hacking it. <laughs> Unless he's hacking it and coding it, you know, as you say, I don't really see how he's doing these upgrades to his ability. Yeah, he hasn't got the DLC, man. Where's he got the money for it? <laughs> I, I think we need to see in the plot some sort of a demonstration of the mechanism by which. Um, I think we need to do science as a category. Oh, ooh. See, what do you think about the science of having the machines and also embodying the computer programs, the sentience in those kind of uh, ball bearings that that move around? That's particular. That was weird. I mean, oh, one thing I do like about the robots in the Matrix is, you know, those squids. Do you mean the like the ball bearings that you push your fa- you push your face into to get an imprint of your face, kind of thing? That, well, it's uh, like that, that, isn't it? Yeah, that's how that uh, uh, Morpheus was made of. Yes, yeah, that was one of those, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really see the point of that, to be honest with you, Richard. Well, they're, they're programmed AIs. They need a physical representation when they're in the real physical world, don't they? If it, if indeed it is the real physical world, who knows? That might be another simulation. But the the mechanism they use to do that... Oh, right. ...is a magnetic yeah. ball kind of form. You can imagine doing that with some kind of magnetic field, I suppose, maybe. Yeah, that's okay. It gets a pass from me. A pass. A science pass. A science pass. And for all the computer-generated stuff, you know, it's visionary. And it it remains pretty visionary, I think. So, uh, for the science, I'll I'll give it a seven. I don't know what to score it for the science. Uh, I mean, obviously, the power generating from people, that's where it loses marks. That's a bit silly. That's silly. Uh, I'm going to score it seven because I hadn't really thought about that. Okay, last category, VFX action actions. Let's put Special it all in together. Okay. Yeah, I'll just keep it short. Yeah, action six. Too much of it. It was impressive, but I'm not sure. I think action needs to be necessary and needs to be uh, slimmed down and contained for the purposes of plot. Uh, FX great, but not mind blowing. And although you won't expect mind-blowing from another movie, because of its provenance as an inherited Matrix title, uh, I, it would have been nine, but I'm going to score it an eight. So uh, in summary, action and VFX, I'm going to score it a seven, Rich. One of the great things which adds to the ambience of this film is the first movie was supposed to be set in the US somewhere, I don't know, but actually was filmed in Melbourne or somewhere in Australia because of tax breaks and stuff like that. Um in this film, they actually are filming it in San Francisco. Adds to the ambience of the film. But the other thing is the amazing costumes, the fits, as they call them, I think. Um, people look so cool in this film. 
<laughs> it's going to influence a generation of school shooters and <laughs> and psychopaths and, and cyber goths, uh, you know, in their clothing choices. It, it looks fantastic. Everyone looks great. Um, yeah. Uh, so special score effects it. and action, amazing. I'm going to score it. Uh, wow. An eight. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, in summary... I have to say, I waited through the internal credits for a gold uh, for an Easter egg that wasn't that impressive. It was a joke about the cat tricks. Okay, uh, terribly and, weak. Uh, yeah, it was not really worth weak. waiting for. Not worth waiting for. Uh, I'm not going to downscore it for that. I'm going to go for a final score of seven point five uh, with a 1992 style uh, Rage Against the Machine outro by a band that I'd never heard of before. So yeah, seven point five in total for me. Yeah, uh, I think that is a very fair score. It's not mind-blowingly brilliant. But you're a bigger fan, so you know, It's not earth-shattering. Market. It can't and doesn't, you know, uh, one-up the first Matrix. But it's certainly better than 2 and 3, and it's a decent watch. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, you know, if you're middle-aged and looking for love, it's very heartwarming. So I'll give it, I'll give it a 7.5 <laughs> also. I've got I've got Richard's Tinder login if anyone's interested look okay (laughs) it is better than the second and third movies Uh, however uh, its reception generally has been seen as a slight flop you know what Paul we're going to have to choose another movie to watch which is a shock because neither of us has thought about this well I've got I've I've got I've got an immediate suggestion for you oh fuck and it's a descent into childishness uh Uh, so I suggest we go full juvenile geriatric and go to see Spider-Man at the movies. So next week, it's Spider-Man No Way Home. Well, Paul, it's the end of the podcast as we know it, and I feel fine. No way. Paul, you're supposed to, you're supposed to be keening time I had some time alone. Whilst I say that, aren't you? God damn you. All right, Spider-Man, Spider-Man No Way Home. Thank you for listening to us rattle on about The Matrix. Until the next time, Paul. See you in the next one. Ciao for now. Goodbye.